0: Welcome to the PMPA Speaking of Precision podcast, featuring your hosts, Carly Kistler-Miller and Miles Free. Hello, I'm Miles Free, and welcome to PMPA's Monday with Miles, Speaking of Precision. Joining me today is Carly Kistler-Miller, and we are going to discuss six factors that can affect tool life in your shop. Welcome, Carly.
1: Thanks, Miles. You know, I'm relatively new to the industry, so... I'm always eager to learn and I have a list here of the six factors that I'd like to read through and I'm hoping you can explain them for me. The first one is variations between suppliers.
0: As consumers, we're pretty familiar with the difference between Wonder Bread and Tip Top Bread and Sunbeam Bread, but they're bread.
1: Whoa, Tip Top Bread? You went back.
0: I I went back, red, white, and blue wrapper, many a breakfast morning, staring at the Tip Top Bread wrapper, wondering why they added retard, uh, they added something to retard spoilage, and I could never figure that out. But it's made me one heck of an ingredient looker ever since.
1: Uh Uh-huh, well thank you, Tip Top Bread. So, okay, so there's differences.
0: Well, even though the grade is the same, each supplier has different melt practices, scrap practices, different melt recipes, and the reduction in the cold drawing process or the way that they straighten a particular size can be different between suppliers. And these differences can show up uh, in your shop based on how the chip wants to separate or, or not separate and whether or not the material as it's being cut leaves a residue, what we call a build-up edge or BUE, on your tool. And that build-up edge is probably the single largest determinant of the surface finish you get. So different suppliers, tip-top bread tastes different than Schwabels.
1: As it should. Need a little variety. So what about variations in chemistry?
0: Well, chemistry is really what makes anything in the steel develop. If the right chemicals aren't there, the feature that you're hoping to get in the material isn't there. So let's just look at sulfur as one example. On a plain carbon steel grade, you're allowed 0.4 or 0.5 max sulfur, but what if somebody is trying to have the highest surface quality and they decide to keep their sulfur at 005? That's 25% of what... I think you need to have a very successful to machine uh, non-resulfurized steel, which would be O2 minimum sulfur. So just the difference in sulfur can be a a marked difference in performance in your shop. The other difference is, as we said, they have different processes, different melt shop process. Uh, An electric furnace shop that steel is going to be melted in air so it can pick up nitrogen from the atmosphere. In a BOF shop, we blast oxygen, pure oxygen, into that molten iron about twice the speed of sound. There's no nitrogen to be picked up in that vessel. The effect of nitrogen in steels can be significant in that it uh, affects that material's ability to work harden It's ductility or ease to be moved plastically, and all of those factors result in differences in forming the chip and in surface finish.
1: Wow, I definitely needed to pay better attention in chemistry class. Okay, so the third on the list is variations in grain size.
0: So I'm going to talk about grain size in the carbon uh, steels for a minute, and then I'm going to mention it in relation to stainless steels. As you know, I'm a steel guy. I'll let uh, one of our guests down the road explain this stuff to us in the yellow metals. Coarse grain is what we're used to in the free machining steels. In our screw machine days, everything had a resulfurized component. It was 1100 series, it was 1200 series. And those steels were coarse grain practice. Coarse grain size meant better machinability and better plastic forming. Think of that as thread rolling, not thread cutting. However, when we adjusted to make uh, non-resulfurized steel parts in our shops, that'd be alloy steels or the plain 1000 series steels, those steels tended to come to us with a fine grain practice. That fine grain size reduces machinability It contributes to tool wear and the advantage of that fine grain though is the steel itself is more sound and there's far less distortion when heat treating. Now I said I'd talk about stainless steels for a minute and there's certainly some other people in our industry that are more expert in this area. But uh, grain size can be a factor, a differing factor between suppliers on stainless grades and when we're machining forgings, for example, uh, the grain size can be relatively blocky because of the excessive temperatures that, that are involved in forging and different cooling. And so we can have a grain size component show up as inconsistent machining in those kind of products.
1: Wow. Okay. So. Next on our list of six factors that can affect tool life is variations in microstructure.
0: So microstructure is is interesting because if if you were just looking at this purely, you'd say, well, grain size is a microstructure. But we're actually going beyond that grain size component to look at the exact structure that has been developed from the chemistry. So, steels can be encountered in several different kinds of microstructures. For instance, if you're machining castings, that microstructure will actually be an as-cast structure. It will not be a hot-rolled structure at all. That casting can be improved by normalizing, which will attempt to get the microstructure more homogeneous, more normal, what we're used to receiving steel off of a mill. The normalized structure is predominantly ferrite and perlite. And as I said, that can be either a hot rolled or a cold rolled or cold finished uh, microstructure. Cold finished steels, depending on the carbon content and the alloy content, can also be provided with an annealed microstructure. A lamellar perlitic anneal or LP anneal is generally used on the carbon and alloys between 40 and 80. Above 80, we tend to run into a spheridized annealed structure. To develop a spheridized structure, we hold the steel at a high temperature for a relatively long time, allowing the carbon to diffuse and create actual spheres rather than plates in the material. It's not that the spheres or little balls make the machining easier, it's that it increases the mean free path for the tool between the high carbon components in the material. Finally, there's a microstructure in steels after they've been quenched and tempered called martensite. This is a very high strength, very brittle component And you certainly don't want to, using normal techniques, try to machine martensite on on our equipment. Now, there are exceptions. And one of those exceptions is called hard turning. And there's a reason they call it hard turning. Martensite is the root cause. And the experience you have doing it is the other.
1: (laughs) So how about? decarburization or scaling on the work surface?
0: So, decarb can be a surprise. After you've machined the parts and you've sent them to your customer and the customer tries to do some form of heat treat and they don't get the expected surface hardness, decarb is often an issue. We can contribute to that in our shops by failing to take sufficient stock removal, which uh, allows that decarburized surface to remain and so it doesn't respond as well to the heat treat because the carbon has boiled away. Basically, the outside of the bar's carbon diffuses out in high temperatures. That carbon is necessary to transform when we heat treat it, so decarb means lousy performance on the surface for hardness. That can also result in lousy surface finish because there's no carbon there to make the chip crisp. Scale is a high hardness iron oxide found on our materials if they're direct from the mill and not cold finished. In cold finishing, we remove scale by shot blasting or acid pickling. In some cases, maybe even using abrasive brushes. Iron oxide scale, hematite comes to mind, that's the red rust we're all familiar with, has a very high hardness, actually uh, approximately 1,030 um, on, on the hardness scale. So that's a real tool destroyer.
1: Okay, and last but not least, deoxidation high inclusion count.
0: So I don't know how long it's been since you were a co-ed, but when I was in college, beer was a major factor in my life. And I remember being in bars and watching people put salt in their beer. You ever have uh, that memory?
1: Actually, I just recently saw that for the first time. The beer, that, that's part of the memory, but the salt is new to me.
0: So when you add the salt to the beer, and you can try this at home, folks, but please don't try it while driving. When you add the salt, it drives the carbon dioxide bubbles out of the beer. So if it's too foamy, you put some salt in and you make the bubbles go away. The nice thing about this in beer is the salt is dissolved by the water. It doesn't remain there as a hard particle. In steel, we need to get the dissolved oxygen out of the liquid metal. And so we add a deoxidizer. Silicon is predominantly used, aluminum, columbium, and niobium are also added. They scavenge oxygen, also help to refine the grain. The issue with deoxidizers in steel, as applies to our machining shops, is that While the silicon grabs that oxygen atom and so it's no longer a bubble or a void in your steel so you have sounder steel, the silicon oxide doesn't dissolve into the steel. It remains there as a very hard abrasive particle in your material. Think of it as sand microscopically distributed throughout this material that you're trying to create a nice smooth surface with. And by the way, because it is so hard and abrasive, it contributes to edge wear on your tools. Like I said, on the resulfurized steels, we don't deoxidize, we hold silicon, aluminum, those elements very low, and we get great tool life. Alloy steels, fully killed steels, that's what deoxidation is, it kills the activity, the bubbling in the mold, those steels, we tend to have issues with tool light.
1: Who knew my knowledge of beer would help me understand you? So if we standardize on a single supplier, will that help steady the state for the process?
0: Well, absolutely. You know, uh, when we set the toaster up for the tip top bread and not the Schwabels, when we bought that loaf from Schwabels, it browned differently. It's the same bread, but two different suppliers. And that happens in our shops. Our shops are finely tuned to whatever material we've just run. That's what we've set up. And so when we look at all the chances for variation in the steel supply chain, was it electric furnace? Was it BOF? Was it ingot cast, bloom cast, billet cast? Was it hot rolled? Was it um, hot rolled from a large bloom or from a small billet? All these variations, just in hot roll, can be reflected in our performance in our shops. Now you change cold finishers, some may be drawing from coil to bar, some may be drawing bar to bar, some may be drawing round to a shape, some may be drawing shape to shape. Every one of these variables can affect performance in your shop. So if there's one lesson to understand about trying to optimize shop performance, it's to find a supplier, decide to stay with that supplier when the market will allow you, and you will reduce the variation coming in for your performers to have to figure out. So that's absolutely the best advice. Great. Thank you for joining us. For additional information, please visit pmpa.org. And don't forget to join me next Monday on Monday with Miles, Speaking of Precision.